Hey guys, I'm on video, who's excited? Yeah. Uh, chances are, if you're watching this video, it means that either I don't feel very good come Sunday morning, uh, or I have tested positive for COVID, as my oldest has tested positive for COVID on Friday, and so we're kind of doing things a little bit differently in our house, and all of that. So, COVID's still around. Sucks! Uh, hey, uh, thank you for joining us. I know a video is different. I know it's not as fun as being in person and, and I get to kind of vibe off the crowd and stuff like that. But uh, my ask is that you'd, you'd listen, you'd take notes, and you'd really see what God has for us today in this passage because I think it's incredibly important. And as you'll hear later, every time we open the Word of God, it is an opportunity to be changed by God. And so I just don't want you to miss out on that just because we're on in video. Now, today we're going to walk through half of the book of Acts. What? Not the book. Wow. Chapter 11. We're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 11. We're going to go through half of it, but then we're going to take a break over the summer as we jump back into the book of Genesis during the summer, which we began way back when the pandemic was going and we were all online and then we started to meet in person, but outside. Today, we're going to get to see a bit of a recap of what we have studied the past two weeks in particular, and we'll see Peter explaining to some Hebraic Christians about what had happened and even changed so that the gospel could now be proclaimed to the Gentiles. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Last week, I pointed out what a big deal it is that Cornelius and his family, plus others he invited into his home, had heard the gospel from Peter. Because for the first time, people without any Jewish blood were being exposed to the gospel. Without any expectation of circumcision or keeping the law or traditions in order to be saved. Now, the other apostles and believers were getting word that Christ was being preached and shared with these Gentiles, and some of their responses kind of tells you where their hearts were at at the time. Here's what it says in verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So the conservative branch of the Christians, known as the circumcised, as they were known, the ones who believed you must keep the law and do the traditions in order to then come to Christ for salvation, were probably offended that Peter, an apostle, a Jewish Christian, would fraternize with these Gentiles, which according to the Levitical law would make a Jew unclean by eating and going into the home of a Gentile. Pharisees, in the first century would often add their own spin and expectations onto the law to attempt to keep people from breaking the law in the first place. In fact, we see this at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Look with me as we hear about the story of Adam and Eve. It says in chapter 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's skip to chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Um, who said anything about touching the tree? I'm not really sure where this came from. Uh, some could say it was left out of the narrative, not likely. 
Perhaps Eve heard Adam wrong? Also, probably not likely. My guess is that Adam added to what God had said in the hopes that if she didn't go near it, she couldn't eat from it. Hmm, smart. Except that's actually religion. To add to what God said and attempt to justify oneself through the rules, this is when religion entered into the fray. I wonder, church, what specific things we as gospel-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-following, Bible-trusting Christians do to add to the salvation and condemn others for their not keeping some specific law that God never expected for any of us to keep in the first place. The laws were given to make us realize our need for a Savior. And far too often we detest God and His law, but His law is given so we wouldn't find death and that Jesus would then fulfill it and we would have the opportunity to turn to him. Now, the Pharisees and even the early Hebraic Christians seemed to have this thought or thinking that you had to do certain things in order to be saved. They wanted the gospel specifically for their own kind, but didn't want to accept that any and everyone was eligible for the same grace that these Hebraic Christians were given. I think we all do this to an extent. I think we realize we don't deserve grace, but we still compare ourselves to people who are much, much worse in our minds. But by which standard do we judge and compare? Do we compare ourselves to the outliers of dictators and murderers and tyrants? Or do we compare ourselves to Jesus? Because each of us is infinitely worse than Jesus when it comes to keeping the law and doing what is right. It doesn't matter if you're Hitler or Putin. Or if you're Mother Teresa or Tom Hanks, we don't come close. And nor do the the scriptures teach that we could. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's Ephesians 2.4, no verse up there. I said that because I want you to be reminded constantly, but God. Now, I know I can personally admit to my spiritual snobbishness. I tend to think that the goal of spiritual excellence is myself and and my current maturity, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know why? Because every year that I have been a Christian, I have looked back at the prior year and gone, wow, what was I thinking? So why would I be so arrogant to think that the bar is set by my current status? Now, you can look at that two ways. One, you, I am so sorry for all of you that have had to put up with me as I've been in process and will continue to be. Or you can look at it as you're currently getting the most sanctified version of me ever. Probably until tomorrow. But something I need to be constantly reminded of is that God is working on me. I have not arrived. My sanctification process is still exactly that, a process. Now, a few months back, Daniel, one of our elders who's on the teaching team, talked about warnings in the Bible, which I think in many of our spiritual snobbishness sometimes makes us ignore, like a slippery when wet sign in California when really when our our road's really wet. A warning that comes to mind often for my soul is the parable in which Jesus paints this picture of the religious person who thinks they have the market cornered on theology and how God sees people. In Luke 18, starting in verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a constant warning to me, not because I'm afraid to lose my relationship with God or I'm afraid that I'm not saved in the first place, but the spiritual arrogant ignore the warnings of God because they don't think they apply to them. And we are committed to being a church that makes the gospel of Jesus's life, his death and his resurrection as our only way of relationship with God. And we make that gospel foremost, our focus and our filter. Foremost means that when we make decisions and we point out vision, it's all wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is our focus, it means that when we prepare sermons or Bible studies or ministries or invest in children or do worship music or even when we pray, any and everything we do is not with the gospel just tacked on or as an afterthought. But why and what we do and all of those things I just mentioned as a church is focused on the gospel of grace. The gospel being our filter means that when we write messages, we use the gospel as the decoder ring as far as meaning and purpose of what the passage is communicating. Because the entirety of the Bible is not a book to make us better people. It is a rescue story of God coming to save those who would turn to him and trust him alone for their salvation. So when we read that Peter was being accosted by those known as the circumcised believers, we ought to see it as a warning that we too might be expecting things from other Christians that are man-made rules rather than God's best for us. We spent the last four weeks doing a training called Compelled, equipping those who decided to make the time on Wednesday evenings to hear about a theology of evangelism, different tools of how to engage those around us, and how to answer when asked about the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. And one of the reasons we did this compelled teaching is that I don't think our evangelism should ever be attempting to convert anyone to our legalism or our rules, but to point them to Jesus, who when we enter into a true relationship with him, begin to see the glory of God as something we get to participate in daily. We get to point people to Jesus. We get to live our lives with Jesus and his gospel of grace as central to our existence and the purpose in which we live and breathe and have our being. And if that's the case, we see others as people who also ought to know about the grace of our Lord, not because we can convert them or because we think we're better than anyone, but because we realize that some may realize themselves that they know that they need forgiveness. And by God's grace, we know who that forgiveness can be given by. So then Peter begins with the story that over the past few weeks, we have studied in great detail, especially the last two sermons. In verse four of chapter 11, he says, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Verse five, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked 
into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, the three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Peter documented by Luke lays out these other lays out to these other believers the story in which we studied over the past two weeks clearly and making known that the Lord intervened so Peter would understand that both Jew and Gentile could and are welcomed into the kingdom of God through the intervention of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. And look at what Luke documents is the response of those who at one point were perhaps legalistic and misunderstanding that God's grace was for both Jew and Gentile. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They had no further objections. This is supernatural in the sense that these people who had believed one thing by the word of an apostle Peter had changed their mind and could now accept Gentiles into the family of God. This is how we need to be living today in 2022. God can save and transform any type of person. If they are gay, non-binary, Jehovah's Witness, legalistic, Republican, Democrat, hippie, hipster, baby boomer, Gen Zer, anyone, any type of person, God can save. So when you come to Christ, now I'm gonna have to spoil this for some of you, and I may even be giving some of you a reason to not come to Jesus. Are you ready? When you come to Christ, you become a new creation, which means you're not who you once were. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Now let's talk about what a big deal it is when someone becomes a Christian. While physically, the transformation may be less obvious, God does transform us internally and eternally for his glory. When a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord through faith, their status changes in eternity. No longer are they someone destined for destruction or deserving of God's wrath, or if you'd like it to sound a little less harsh, in eternity without God, but now they, by grace, through faith in Christ, have their status changed. Not because of what they've done, but because of who they belong to. In two weeks, Lord willing, and assuming and hoping COVID passes, Aaron and I are going to go on our first trip without our kids since August of 2020. 
We were gifted a cruise from our in-laws and we're, even though it's a little before our anniversary, we're gonna celebrate our 19 year wedding anniversary. Pause for applause. Yeah, that applause should be for Jesus and my wife. They both put up with me. But we're gonna be spending seven days on this Alaskan cruise through Seattle and we even get to go into Canada for a day. Now, this is the second time we have done this, done this specific cruise to Alaska. Last time was with the entire extended family. So in theory, this time should be a lot more relaxing. We have done many cruises in our almost nine year, 19 years of marriage, but this is also a special one because on the third day, third, third day is pretty important, on the third day of the cruise, we will both become what is known to Royal Caribbean as Emerald members, which gives us special benefits. We've been gold members for quite some time and because uh, we have done a certain amount of days on different Royal Caribbean ships, we are now becoming Emerald members and on this trip on the third day, our status will change. Now, here's the thing though. Aaron, who married me uh, 18 years and like 320 days ago or something like that, uh, she in particular has been on more Royal Caribbean cruises than I have. She went on a few before we got married. So actually she is the one who has earned the status of Emerald at, for Royal Caribbean. I'm just along for the ride. I'm just connected to her. So I too receive her status, not because I earned it, but because of who I belong to. In the gospel, we receive Christ's status, not because we earned it, but because of who we belong to. <laughs> who would have thought I would actually gospelize a cruise vacation? Huh? Huh? Hey, Mike, does this mean I can now write it off? No. Okay. And becoming a new creation is not because we did anything really good or earned anything. It's all because we belong to Jesus and his status is given to us. This is why Paul could say to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Jesus. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, who had received the same Holy Spirit that each of us receives when by faith we trust Jesus Christ as Lord, lives no longer for himself, but by faith in the Son of God. Now, he isn't raising the bar. He's not some super apostle. He is stating the fact of what the new creation affords us, which is a life lived for Jesus. Let me say that again, because it's not a note. It's not going to be up on the screen. I want you to hear this, though. The new creation affords us a life that is lived for Jesus. The past month has been a lot. Some of that has to do with having five beautiful, wonderful trophies of grace in our home. Between athletic events and practices, friend hangouts, family outings, emergency room visits, school drop-off, pickup, bedtimes, baths, meals. Can you believe all these kids actually want three meals a day? except for the boy who wants like 18. On top of that, there were a few extra sermons that I needed to write and present for various reasons that I hadn't planned on. And then I also ended up rewriting most of Compelled and didn't just present what I had taught in the past. Now, on top of that, I've had staff meetings and elder meetings, friend hangouts, individual meetings with staff and other people within the congregation. 
And it has just honestly made for a very full dance card lately. But God has been teaching me things daily. In fact, about a month ago, we asked the staff to write down at the end of the day for about a week what God had taught them about himself on that day. And then in staff meeting, we all shared some of the highlights, some of the themes. And this is something that I recommend that we all do, that at the end of your day, you look back at the day and go, what did God teach me through his word, through circumstances, through conversations? Now, I'm not much of a journaler, but I love taking notes in my Evernote app or using the whiteboard to write down a thought. And with all the things that he has taught me over the past month alone, I want to share one specific thing that he has taught me because it became the theme for almost everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth the pain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth the pain. Pain? What pain, you say? The pain of knowing that the gospel, while changing our status eternally and giving us right standing with God, the change happens in our lives. The way we think, the priorities in which we have, and even the way that we see the world will change because of this. Our relationships with other people will change. Not only does our status change when we become a Christian, but we start to grow and we start to see things differently and growth hurts. And the gospel is a invitation not to grow naturally, but to grow supernaturally. And unfortunately, generally people don't like change. So it becomes something that sometimes people can't understand. Even some people who are in the church and are focused on something, and if they admit it or not, they're focused on something other than the gospel. I've heard and I've had conversations in the past few weeks where people have been discussing what keeps them here at Church of the Valley and in this community. And guess what? It's not our production value. Like our, our smoke machine and our lasers seem to be on the fritz currently. No, the thing that keeps them here and connected and committed and faithful, it's the gospel. Not that it's tacked on to every message, but that we focus on it in everything that we attempt to do. It becomes the filter for what we say yes to as a church. It becomes the filter to what we say no to as a church. It's how we view the world that no one is outside of the grasp of God's grace and no one can out the cross. And we understand that God's grace changes an individual who has truly received it. Okay, let's get back to the final verse one more time, and then we'll be done. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. These circumcised believers, after hearing essentially a recap of chapter 10 of the book of Acts and the story of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit drawing he and his Gentile household to the Lord agreed and sat down some of their presumptions and they praised God. This is how every church meeting ought to go. We hear the gospel, we lay down our religion and we praise God, amen? And what did they say? Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Oh, how I love that statement. I love that it was this aha moment. You can say aha, aha. Not that good, but cool. 
for those who had expected that the gospel was for only a certain type of person, maybe we'll say uh, the devout and religious people, they had this aha moment. But this statement in particular points out a few things. One, the Gentiles are included in God's people. It's not about a bloodline, it's about Jesus's blood. Repentance is something the Lord initiates in the hearts of people. Repentance doesn't save you. Repentance is the response to the conviction that one has sinned against God and that by faith trust Jesus. And so we turn from wanting our sin to define us and lead us and we by faith hand that over to Jesus. Repentance quite literally means to change your mind and your direction. You were going this way and now you've changed direction. And when we repent, we are demonstrating our change of mind about our own sin. Another way to say it is this, sin is no longer our leader because Jesus is our Lord. And repentance is the byproduct of faith in Jesus. But God, the Holy Spirit, he convicts us. And he shows us that our sin does not fulfill us because only Christ and placing our identity in him can fulfill us. And lastly, the statement shows the response to conviction demonstrated in repentance leads to life. I'd, I'd say this, I think as Christians, we ought to be repentance aficionados because we don't just do it to do it, but every time we open God's word, it is an invitation to repent, and a repentance is an invitation to be intimate with God. And when we repent, it's not like saying sorry because we got caught or because we need to pacify someone. Repentance is a humbling of our posture to realize that we have sinned against the perfect one and we are in need of grace. David in the Psalms says it this way in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Church, God is right to judge us, but he is gracious to give us Jesus's perfect record. He is just when people choose to reject him and he gives them what they want, and yet he is gracious when he grants faith that leads to repentance that reorients our affections towards God who gave us the son to pay the debt that we all owed. D.L. Moody, the great uh, Christian evangelist at the end of the 19th century, tells a story about a man who wanted to hear about Jesus, wanted to become a Christian, and a pastor that just kind of didn't get it. It starts this way. The pastor asks this man who walks into his church, well, my friend, what is the trouble? The man responds, the fact is I have overdrawn my account, which was a polite way of saying that he had been stealing. Did you take your employer's money? The pastor asked. Yes, yes I did. How much? The man then replied, I don't know. I've never actually kept track of it. Well, the pastor responded, do you think you've stole at least $1,500 this past year? Yes, the man said, I'm afraid I have. The pastor then replied, now look here, sir. I don't believe in sudden work. Don't steal more than $1,000 this next year. And then the next year, not more than $500. And in the course of the next few years, you will get to the point where you won't steal anything. If your employer catches you, tell him you are being converted and you will get to the point where you don't steal at all. 
eventually. That is not repentance. The word of God says, let him that stole still know more. It is a about face when we repent. We were going this way and then we changed direction and we about face. But again, repentance is not what saves you. Repentance is the byproduct of trusting grace to be enough to make you right with God. Oswald Chambers, the the Christian writer, wrote many years ago, and he spoke of repentance, and it's a a quote that I appreciate so very much, and this is what we're going to conclude with. And so, worship team, Malik, you you can come on up. Here's what Oswald Chambers says. It is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. It is my obedience. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. When I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic. It stands on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. So church, my hope for you today as we have studied this passage together is that you would understand that our right standing, our being made a new creature, a new creation to not be who we once were, but we have been made new is part of the gift of having your status changed. And we can live in the reality that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves in Jesus's life, his death and his resurrection. And if you claim Jesus, but you continue to kind of spin around and you trust him, but then you change direction and then you start to go back to your sin and all of these things on somewhat of a spiritual merry-go-round, let me remind you that your status has been changed. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it's not because of what you've done, it's because of what Christ has done and we can live in that truth. Let's pray. Father, I pray, one, that this awful virus would pass through our house quickly, God, and that it wouldn't be given to anyone else. Lord, I pray that you would keep us all healthy and God, that you would uh, move mightily through the, the preaching of your word this morning that is heard on Sunday morning. God, I pray that you would use it and I pray that people would see what a big deal it is to stand in grace, to stand in the reality that we are made right, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And in this, we can live and breathe and have our being and we can proclaim the gospel of grace to others. I pray that you'd save many in this room if you haven't already. And I pray that you would use us to reach others for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.